Hi, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. Today's guest is my dear friend, Kimberly, who I've been wanting to interview since I started the podcast, but she's been busy getting a degree and now her license as a therapist. As a friend, I know what an amazing therapist she already is, but the reason I wanted to have her on the show is because she had the daunting task of raising her kids um, who through their adolescence in the wake of their father's death. And this is a topic we've been discussing, she and I, for many years on walks and runs through Griffith Park. Um, so hi, Kimberly. Hi, Anne. <laughs> um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how I met John, your husband, before I even met you, um, because he was the dad who was always sitting under the big tree in the play yard with the kids hanging all over him at the preschool where we met. And I remember him playing a guitar and getting the kids to sing songs with him. And we all had to volunteer because it was a cooperative preschool. But John was by far the most popular parent. Yes. (laughs) He was just so super gregarious and playful and always smiling and laughing with the kids. So um, was it about seven years ago that John died? Yes, just over seven years. So he died of colon cancer. Yes. Um, after a couple of years of treatment? Mm-hmm. Just a little over two years of okay. treatment. And we were pretty close through that whole period. So I remember thinking at the time, you guys were doing an amazing job of talking to your kids about his health through that period of his illness. Um, so my first questions are just how old were your kids when their father died? And how much did you and John talk about the idea of sort of preparing them for that, or was that even on your mind at the time? Mm-hmm. It absolutely was on our minds at all times. Mm. So when he died, they were 14 and 12. Mm. My daughter is older, my son was 12. So it was always a calculus with my husband and I. I mean, we always thought, how much should we tell them? How much can they hold? What should they know? What should they not hold? And we were always talking to friends and we had a friend who was a therapist too who worked with a lot of families and was um did a lot of hospice care as well Mm. so she was always counseling us about how much to tell them and in fact it turns out that my son still feels to this day even seven years later that we didn't tell him at the last moment when john was actually going to die Mm. that he felt it was a shocking surprise which really surprises me because I thought it was pretty obvious. But at the end, that friend who was in hospice care said, you can't tell them, oh, I think dad's going to die in six months or even a month because kids that age can't hold that. Yeah. You know, she advised against it. Yeah. But we did always think about it. And now I think that my son in particular thinks that that was one of the worst experiences that he didn't know in enough time Mm. he didn't have that capacity to understand what was happening yeah and for my daughter she feels like she kind of knew at the end I mean I told them now is the time to spend time with dad Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to make it through the night Mm. and they did but at that time he was so shocked that it was now 
Mm. It's your son. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's dad is dying tonight. Mm. I don't think this is, you know, this is your last time to talk to him. And my husband was kind of going in and out of consciousness at that right. point. He wasn't really completely able to um, communicate with them, but he was kind of unconscious before they went to see him. And then he did wake up. Mm. And he really engaged with them in a way that he had not been engaging with me or some other friends that had stopped by that day. I mean, he really rallied for them. Mm. And it was quite amazing and wondrous, really, to see. But I think I'm still going to be dealing with this issue for decades to come. Mm. The issue of your son um, blaming you for that or being angry about that? Yes, yeah. and not feeling that we told him yeah. to have enough time to prepare. Yeah. And I'm not sure about my daughter, how she feels about that, but honestly, we don't talk that much about it. But John and I were always holding the fact that, yes, it was a very serious diagnosis, and he could die, mm-hmm. even with all of the crazy treatment. I mean, he had five rounds of chemo, radiation, dozens of procedures and surgeries. So it was always, you could die later or right now, depending Mm. on what kind of reaction you have to treatment, and you could survive it, you know, so we could hold those two things at the same time. But kids of that age could not really, you know, they needed a little bit more black and white. And honestly, I don't really know what their experiences were because it was so difficult to talk about yeah. with them. Yeah. No, I think that is maybe the hardest part is the illness in a way um, because it's so hard to hold all what you're feeling and the prospect of your kids losing their father and dealing with all of the medical stuff. Yes. And, I mean, it's just and, and, and. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I really relate to what your son was feeling because I had the same thing. And I, I mean, there's a part of me that still is 14 and is still feels like no one told me my mom was going to die. You know, it's still there. And I think it, from my perspective now, it's so clear to me that it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand that she was dying. And people in my family claim although I don't remember any conversations like this, that they did have conversations with me about her dying. But I don't think I could absorb that or certainly couldn't get my head around it to the point of, oh, mom is going to die. It was really just always, she'll get better. I know she'll get better. Mm -hmm. So there's denial there that was serving me and allowing me to go through the day and go to school. And, you know, it served me very well. But that resentment I had, I did carry that for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just so you know, like, it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> well, thank you. It's natural, is yes. what I'm trying to say. And yes. I bet a lot of kids who, um, you know, every kid's different. My older siblings didn't have that. Mm-hmm. But as the younger one, like your son is the younger one, I yes. definitely sort of my role in the family was to kind of just I let everyone else take care of things for me mm-hmm. um, as the youngest. And so I sort of assumed everyone was going to take care of mom getting better for me. I wouldn't have to think about that. I just mm-hmm. could go ahead. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been very interesting in our family because my mother died of cancer about five years before that. Right. And during that experience, my son was more able 
than my daughter to hear the bad news. Like at the end of that experience, my son said, you know, is Nana going to die? And I said, do you really want to know? And my daughter went away like far, far. I don't want to know. And my son came towards me and I said, yes, she is. Mm. She's going to die. So at that age, he was almost mm, more prepared to hear that kind of thing. Mm. And it wasn't his parent, of course. It was his grandmother. I think that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think your parent dying is so unbelievably hard to get your head around yes it's not so much just death death itself is hard to understand so it it probably helped him a lot that actually he had already lost his grandmother who was not some distance figure she took care of them she helped take care of them she was quite involved in their life Mm -hmm. so i i would assume his seeing her die a few years before really did help prepare him on some level yes but it's so interesting, right? That mm-hmm. he still had this thing of like, I didn't see it coming or I didn't know, no one told me. Yes. I just think that's got to be common because I know I felt literally exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting yeah. because kids, what what they've told me uh, throughout this whole, you know, nine-year process now that we're going on is that they want to be just kids. You know, even now, they want to be just kids that fit in they don't want to be different they don't want to be pitied they don't want other people thinking that they need to be handled with kid gloves or anything like that right so at that age they were in middle school they wanted to just go to school and have fun and do kid things yeah but they had this terrible burden on them and it wasn't a secret i mean our friends and the parents and the school all everyone knew because they all wanted to support us as a family. I mean, it was a whole community effort. As you know, you were a big part of that, supporting us through John's illness. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to not think about it. They just wanted to be kids. And so we tried as best we could to give them that experience, to just let them go off and not worry about John's health. And yet it was always present, especially when they were home. So I would you know, make a special effort to take them to their games or to school and to try to keep up their routines. And then when I had to break it due to some treatment or there were lots of emergencies, you know, where he just needed to go to the hospital or something like that, where we would get somebody else to take them to school or their games or do something so they could carry on with as much of their lives as they can and not have everything be about John's illness. But that was really difficult because things would pop up all the time and I remember at one point maybe halfway about a year into John's treatment my daughter asked me mom when are you going to relax like you're so tense all the time when are you gonna just basically you know be able to be like a normal Mm -hmm. relaxed mom like you were before the illness is what she was implying that's how I interpreted Mm -hmm. it and I thought and I said I don't think I can because I'm always on edge because there's always something about to go down, you know, because he needed to go to the emergency room so many times and there was so much to do. And I wasn't, I, I couldn't work much at that point. You know, eventually I had to, you know, sort of semi 
quit my job because his care was so full-time and of course caring for my children as well so I told her I I don't think I can relax you know I'm trying my best to manage it but I don't see a time where I could just chill Yeah. yeah that's such an interesting thing that she said that to you you know, and and it's an interesting thing to think about too that they're not only losing, you know, the loss really starts with the diagnosis. Yes. And I always think like they lose a parent, just being their parent. Suddenly, this parent is now a cancer patient too, and that mm-hmm. takes a lot of their focus. But I really didn't think that hard about how it also takes the other parent. I mean, I I think about it, but I didn't think about it as um, both parents kind of or have changed now because of the cancer diagnosis. And it's really that change in focus mm-hmm. that is a big deal to a kid. Yeah, I mean, the whole family dynamic changes. And, you know, thinking about it as a mom, as I experienced it, but then also now looking back at it as a therapist, because mm. I became a therapist after my husband died, and um, it's family dynamics, you know, the, the shift in the hierarchies and the concentration and, you know, the parent who was, you know, the fun one, as you say. John mm-hmm. was the fun parent. He was the one who would take them out and they would stay up late and eat pizza and, you know, do all these fun things. And I was more of the, okay, you got to brush your teeth, go to bed, do all right. these things, you know. So it really did shift everything. And there are so many ways that I didn't understand all of those intricacies. But looking back on it, I don't think that I was able to address that with the kids. No. I mean, how could you? You, your plate, you you've made it nice and clear how full your plate was. And mm-hmm. I appreciate you spelling that out because I think we don't think about it even in the moment. You know, while you're in it, it's hard to see how much you're, you know, you're spread out so thin and you feel like you're handling everything. But like looking back, you can be like, oh, yeah, I really didn't do mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. No, um, no. And I, you know, I, I tried, certainly I tried to think of everything, you know, because yeah. as a mom, of course, you're trying to like handle yes. everything kind of on your own, too. And me yes. especially. And yet I felt like, OK, I've got this in place. I've got, And we did certainly have a lot of things in place. Yeah. And yet it took such a toll on all of us that we can only, I can only begin to understand it now with time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really admired um, the way you were open with your kids about your feelings. And you had this incredibly beautiful funeral at home that really made an impression on me. I'd never been to a funeral like that before, but um, um, you had the funeral at home with a death doula who helped you organize a natural cremation for John, and so he died at home, and then you had his body on display for anyone who wanted to come see him um, for a few days before the ceremony, and then the ceremony was just gorgeous. It was right in your backyard with music, and there were doves, and it was super intimate because there was John's body on display and it just brought this level of immediacy and kind of honesty to the ceremony that is really not common in a typical American funeral or 
memorial service today. Um, even with an open casket, you have to sort of peer in to see the person, yes. you know, and there he was just laid out on the, in his beautiful suit and he was surrounded by flowers. Um, and it was just such a powerful presence to have him there and such a reminder of like, this is why we are here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no letting your mind wander and think about other things. It was like, mm-hmm. we are here. And I loved how you involved so many people in the process, you know, giving people jobs and tasks. And it just wasn't like any other funeral I've ever been to, you know, before or since. So my question is, how much of that did you feel like was, I know John had a lot to do with that idea of doing it that way, but how much do you feel like it was for him? Was it for you? Was it for your kids? Was it for all of us? It was mostly for the living. Mm -hmm. And I came to it kicking and screaming, really. Mm. When about six months before he died, John got very serious about making plans. And he decided that this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a home funeral for us, for me and for the kids and Mm. for friends and and family. Mm. And of the first time he proposed this to me, I thought it was a crazy <laughs> idea. I hated it, yeah. just despised it. Mm. Um, because as I thought of John's death, I thought, oh, I don't want all these people coming to my house. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to isolate myself. And, you know, I just thought that would be terrible to have all these people over to the house and him lying dead somewhere <laughs> in the house. <laughs> I mean, I'd see, I'd been with my mother when she died. I'd seen dead bodies. And I did not like this idea of it being in our home. Mm. So he worked on me, <laughs> you know, he found the person that he wanted to do it. And as you say, she was a death doula and this is the service that she offered. And so I agreed to talk to her and I talked to her and talked to John and over a course of time, I began to really see it very differently, Mm. that it was a wonderful opportunity for me and the kids and our friends and family to really process his death and to come together and that I could have choice because we have, you know, a space in our home Mm -hmm. that I could come see the people who came or not if I wasn't feeling up to it, that we would still have privacy and we would have the opportunity to engage the people and as they came. It was, you know, the traditional three days of the body laying out and people coming and going. So I began to warm up to the idea. So we planned it six months before he died. Mm. And then when, you know, he did die, I was able to call her and she came over and helped me, you know, just take care of things. So John conceived of it as her taking care of me when she, when he died. Mm. So he really conceived of it for me, first of all, like you are going to need a person to walk you through just the practicalities of what you do when someone dies. And then she's there to take care of the funeral arrangements Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then she can be there so that you can take care of the kids and yourself. And so he really conceived of it for us. Wow. And it did really feel that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it felt so much more like a coming together of community than it, than any other funeral or memorial I've ever been to where it usually feels like, Oh, we're showing up. We get dressed up. We show up. We leave. Yes. (laughs) 
yes. we say our things and we leave or, or we go back to the house and have some food but it's it has this feeling of formality that keeps everybody sort of propped up in a way mm-hmm. yours was there was an informality that was really bonding you know it's so similar to what um people have done throughout most of history yes you know and still do around the world in different cultures it's just in our culture we really don't do we've so sanitized death and 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 the service around death and some people don't even do ceremonies around death and that's Mm -hmm. that's fine it's just no judgment around it i'm just saying i think what you did opened my eyes so much to why we do this, how it can be helpful. And I thought a lot about your kids in that moment. Of course, they had that very teenage kind of attitude of like slight embarrassment, but doing it anyway for the, this is for you guys kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. They were. (laughs) I think they would describe it now as being very awkward. Yeah. um, Because... John was very spiritual, spiritual in a really odd, unusual way. Mm-hmm. So I think they were a, very uncomfortable with the woo-woo-ness, yeah. for lack of a better term, yeah. of it. Um, and of course, you know, as teenagers, they didn't really know what to do, what was their place. And yeah. they wanted to try to be mature about it. And yet it was this terrible experience they were going through. Yeah. And... I, you know, it'd be really interesting to ask them now what yeah. their reflections were about yeah. that day. But it was great for our ability to really process what had happened because he did die at home and he did not want to die in a hospital. He did not want to, you know, be put on life support if there was no possibility that he could have a, a good life after right. that. Right. And I think the kids were uncomfortable with a lot of that. And yet, I think in retrospect, it was the best thing for all of us to be able to go through that whole process, have friends come, support us. And it w- in, even in, during that time, it was lovely. Mm-hmm. It was just so supportive for me. Yeah. And I hope it was for the kids too, because their friends came over yeah. and they all experienced this. And there was a band, as you remember, yeah. with some kids playing in the band with music and, yeah. and things like that. And so the kids were able to have their friends there for support and the families that they all knew. All of these things, I think, were the best thing that John and I could do for them yeah. to help them process the death absolutely because i think so much of what's hard for younger people around death is your brain it really takes time for the brain to readjust to this new reality that's a lot of neural pathways that have to reform and understand this enormous change certainly doesn't like take a chunk out of their grief or anything like that you know i don't think it helps in that sense it's just it really does help in that initial kind of disorientation. Yeah, and they did need to take breaks. I mean, they did go back to school either that next day or the following day. I mean, sure. I was kind of surprised how quickly they wanted to go back to school, but they needed breaks. Oh, yeah. They couldn't stay there for three days and just watch people come and go. No. And, and No, it was too much for them. Yeah. So I just let them decide what they needed to do. Yeah. So... It's, it's a real challenge to 
parent while grieving yeah. and parent children who are grieving while grieving. Mm. <clears throat> this and, is literally my next question. How do you parent uh, and grieve at the same time? Yes. <laughs> Give it to us in three easy steps. Oh boy. <laughs> if only I could. Well, John and I discussed it. I mean, mm. we prepared for a long time. So near the end of his life, when it became apparent that he was going to die, we talked about our fears. Mm. And he said his fear was watching us watching him die. Mm. And I told him that my fear was parenting, grieving children while grieving. Mm. And that was the case. I mean, it was very difficult because, of course, I was... Um, surrounded by people and as you say love and friends and family and yet what I learned during that process was our grief is so unique to all of us I was grieving the loss of a husband and a partner and they were grieving the loss of a father mm. so it was very different yeah. and they were not comfortable with my grief they did not want to really sit with me while I cried. Mm -hmm. They got very uncomfortable if I wanted to talk about John's death. I mean, later, like in the weeks or months or even years that followed. So I had to navigate it by myself is what it felt like sometimes. It was very lonely. I felt lonely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I remember sitting at the dinner table and starting to cry or wanting to talk about John and they just get up and leave mm -hmm. both of them at the same yeah. time yeah um, so I felt like it, it was a little bit like I had to grieve for myself so I had to talk to friends and deal with my own grief and then try to be supportive of them and however they wanted to grieve in the family system and let them know that I was still a person <laughs> and I was grieving and yet just try to be open to whatever it was that they needed. And it was probably a mess a lot of the time. Sure. <laughs> and it was probably fine and just a whole range of things. I just don't even know. Yeah. It's even hard now when you're asking me this question to even figure out what what went on during that time period yeah. especially after john died i became keenly aware that i have to survive mm. for my children mm -hmm. so not only emotionally survive but physically survive yeah. i don't want to leave them without any parents so i became acutely aware that i had to take care of myself and avoid risk as best I could yeah. because I needed to be there for them. Watching them grieve, knowing that they were grieving, but also just being teenagers, um, did you worry about them being lonely? Did you worry about them feeling alienated or isolated from their friends, their friend yes. groups? Yeah, I did. Um, my daughter told me early on that she felt like she wasn't like other kids because she had this experience of her father's death and it gave her a different perspective, a different sense of um, danger, also 
carrying the grief that other kids didn't have, that other kids had a more happy-go-lucky kind of attitude, even if they still had problems at home, they had struggles. It was very different because she didn't know any other kids who had experienced the death of a parent at okay. that time. Okay. So I think she did feel lonely and different and my son, I think, did as well, although I don't recall him articulating it quite that way. Um, and then there was the anger, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were angry at the world, angry at fate, whatever it was, and angry at me in particular. Mm-hmm. So there was also a barrier between us as much as I tried to bridge that with them Um, my daughter, and we've talked about this, at one point she turned to me and said, I wish you had been the one who died and not him. Mm. 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 Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really painful, Mm. and I understood it Mm. coming from an angry adolescent who didn't know what to do with her anger. Yeah. Mm. So much. It was. It was a lot to take. Um, But we did... Um, um, you know, provide them with outlets. Like, as you know, there was a summer camp that we, even when John was ill, there's a summer camp that they went to for kids whose parents have cancer. So they were one, one week a year, they were able to go and before his death and then after his death to just hang out with other kids who were having somewhat similar experiences with either the illness or the death of a parent due to cancer specifically. There's yeah. a foundation that does that. Yeah. And then they were able to just hang out and have summer camp and they wanted it, the camp wanted it to be just normal summer camp most of the time and then acknowledge the parent and the death and the struggles and things like that. And my kids did that for a long, long time. So that was their one outlet where they could be with other kids and just go, oh, there are other kids having this kind of experience. And it really opened their eyes to, um, you know, little kids, three-year-olds having it or teenagers. Mm. And so that really helped me know that at least they're getting a little bit of that support from peers and other families who understand what that might be like. Right, right. Yeah, and I feel like you also have an incredible support system in your own friendships like you have some really close friends who have really stepped up as sort of father figures for your kids yes um was that something that you um did you have to ask or did that sort of happen naturally like how did that work it happened naturally Mm. really i mean john's circle of friends was so vast and we had such good supports of families from this all the schools we'd been involved in. Yeah. Like you say, from the nursery school yeah. where we all knew each other really well. So we had lots of support and people just stepped up. Mm. I mean, there were friends of John's, men, who said, hey, you know, especially if your son wants to come over and play some basketball or watch mm-hmm. some sports mm-hmm. or if your daughter wants to go, you know, with us to this performance or this, you know, evening or this game. I mean, a lot of friends took them because we needed them to because we were at the hospital, but also people just wanted to um, support us and to hang out with my kids. So it happened really naturally. 
And then I have a, a, a couple who um, just decided to really, a- after John was, uh, was dead especially, to help me co-parent. So my best friend, whose name is also John, not to be confused, um, and his husband, Nick, they really became like co-parents with me. So they stepped up and I didn't really ask them, but they had been such good friends before that, that they just showed up and they, okay, what can we do to help you? with the high school and what can we do to help you with you know just practical things but also emotional things for me and for the kids so they really have over the past seven years been co-parents with me and isn't there like a regular dinner or something i feel like your kids went over there for dinner there was yes so my kids were involved in after school sports and they had to go to uh practice after school so especially when they started to drive themselves so they went so far from our house Mm. they needed to eat right after practice and these friends lived really close to where the practice was so they would go to their house John would cook them dinner they could do homework shower do all these things then they would drive back after traffic you know Mm. they're LA kids so they had to try to maximize their time and not (laughs) sit in traffic for two hours so yeah and these friends loved doing it it was fantastic for everybody because i was working then i didn't have to worry about cooking dinner for them at nine o'clock at night or whatever it was so a lot of people helped me and helped them and that became its own thing because my kids formed those relationships with those adults men in particular Mm -hmm. that felt like really important when they didn't have a father or a father figure and we don't have a lot of close family who live very close so they didn't have close grandfathers and and people like that so that felt really important for me especially for my son to have men in his life yeah yeah i mean i think it's important for both kids yes i do what about now like how much do you guys talk about john now do you try to acknowledge their grief periodically i mean do you acknowledge that like their grief is sort of this ongoing thing or would they rather not talk about it in those terms yes they might not want to talk about it but i've always brought it up Mm -hmm. even in the beginning i would say i'm feeling really sad because i'm thinking about dad today and i'm remembering this time when we did this and I still do that so I've done it throughout and I try not to assume what they're going through I sometimes just start off talking about myself and then sometimes they'll talk about themselves too so I try to leave an opening and let them know that if they want to talk about it I would like that Mm. Um, for instance Uh, His birthday and his death anniversary are very close together. So this year, um, you know, I just texted them both. Like we text happy, happy dad birthday or not so happy or something like that, especially now that they're off in college. Um, But my daughter and I spoke about that time period. And I said, you know, come that time of year still, I feel myself being tired Mm. and grouchy and just like what the heck is going on with me oh right Mm. it's March (laughs) right Um, so then we also talked about this year being a little different she called me and said you know I just didn't feel as sad as I used to this year and I said you know I didn't either because I had a very important milestone the day before the anniversary of his death and something I had accomplished. I'd accomplished 
all my therapist hours, all 3,000 of them. And I was so happy about what I had accomplished that then I felt differently about the anniversary of his death Mm. because I was felt like I was looking forward to my license, my career, and acknowledging that that's where it started was me going to therapy when he was ill. Mm -hmm. And now that I've become a therapist, it's kind of coming, you know, back around, around, but I was not as sad because I was so happy about my accomplishments and it was just different. So she acknowledged it was different for her for different reasons. Mm. And so we, I try to talk with them about how it changes. Um, I didn't talk to my son about it in particular. I just Mm -hmm. told him, Mm -hmm. you know, what I had accomplished and that I was very happy and he didn't say much this year. And I, so you know, he's more private now yeah. and she's talking more to me now. So it kind of ebbs and flows based on where they are in their young adult lives and how they relate to me. But I always do try to drop things in, even if it seems kind of random yeah. to them to let them know I'm still thinking about John if they want to talk about where they're at now or share a memory or whatever it is that they want to say to me. Yeah the thing that felt so wrong to me about my experience and I know from interviewing all these other people who are my age um, was the lack of acknowledgement the feeling like there must be something wrong with me because no one is talking about this Mm -hmm. so and I feel terrible and I'm depressed and I'm anxious and I'm alienated and all these things and yet I didn't even you know sometimes I wouldn't even connect it to the fact that my mother had died you Mm -hmm. know and so I think the more the adults around you can can make that connection and be like, yes. oh, you're a little anxious? Well, maybe that could be an outcome of your grief, you know, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and there's nothing wrong with grief therapy and there's nothing wrong with peer support. I think all those things are good. But if you can't get to that or if your kids won't go, yes. I think it's okay if you really make sure that the community, including the parents, but also very importantly friends and teachers around them because parents as you've very clearly stated are not necessarily the people who they can go to or Mm -hmm. they're comfortable talking to um to have those kinds of people around them that they do feel like maybe they're not going to talk about it but it's just acknowledged yes yeah that other people i mean you said to me early on you know we'll talk about grief you know, for many, many, many years, and I'll still keep checking in with you about how your grief is evolving and what's going on with you when other people assume, oh, it's not an issue anymore, or maybe they forget, or they just don't even know what to say. Or a lot of people, I think, you know, they don't want to bring it up because they don't want to make you sad. Right. So a lot of people don't they think, oh, I shouldn't remind that person that they had a death in the family, or I shouldn't remind that person because they're probably having a good time right now, and their good time will be ruined if I asked, you know, how's your grief going right right now? So I think that's a a funny way of going about it to me because it's not like I forgot you know, yeah. but, and it's not like you're going to plunge me into some terrible depression that wasn't already there. Yeah. So I think that's just a, a societal norm that we have, mm-hmm. that we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to disturb anybody. But I do purposefully drop things in with my kids sometimes just to acknowledge still that we are still 
grieving. It's yeah. very different, and yet we are grieving, and we always will be grieving. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's a normal thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is a normal thing to talk about. That's that's the point of yes. this whole thing. <laughs> and that's why we're here. That's yeah. why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Because you do want to talk about it with people. Yeah. And you want to understand your own grief and other people's too. Yeah. Because there's a, uh, there's a taboo against it. Right. It's about normalizing it. So I think COVID mm-hmm. actually has helped a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, I mean, because so many people died during COVID and so many families are affected that somehow we have to start talking about it and dealing with it because it is not serving us. That's the way I tell my patients. It's not serving you anymore to not talk about these things how you how you coped with it maybe you didn't want to talk about it maybe that served you very well especially when you're a teenager like you say yeah anyway i love our friendship i love that this is a topic we never get tired of and so maybe we'll do it again well thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast it's been a real pleasure to talk to you formally about this subject and for other people to listen to and to uh, share in what we've been talking about for a long time yeah So thanks for listening, and if you like the podcast, please take a moment to review and rate it. I know a lot of you mean to do it, but I need you to do it because I only have a few reviews and I need more reviews. Um, And of course, thanks to Josephine Wiggs for the music. It's from her album, We Fall.